Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we debunk the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding. Today, we've got a lot of facts to clarify and I think some myths to debunk as well as I talk with my guest, Dr. Philip Anderson. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'd like to just tell you a little bit about Dr. Anderson. He is Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Pharmacy at the Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. He has chaired the drug information course since its inception, and he is a member of the Admissions Committee and the Comprehensive Examination Committee, as well as the U.S. CSD Medical Center Department of Pharmacy Research Council. Dr. Anderson was the founding director of the Drug Information Service at UCSD Medical Center Department of Pharmacy. His research interests involve the use of medications in nursing mothers. Dr. Anderson is the author of the National Library of Medicine's LACTMED database, which provides information on the use of medications in nursing mothers. He is a charter member of the editorial board and pharmacy editor of Breastfeeding Medicine, where he publishes a monthly column on medication use during breastfeeding. Dr. Anderson earned his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of California, San Francisco in 1971, and he is a fellow of both the American Society of Hospital Pharmacists and the California Society of Health System Pharmacists. I hope that all of you were taking that in because, honestly, I really never thought about the fact that there was a real, live person behind lacked med I, I guess i should have assumed that but uh lucky for us we get to talk with dr anderson today and i know that i've mentioned on this program many many times and i absolutely require it for my comprehensive lactation course that people use lacked med uh so we get to talk today with dr anderson who is uh, the author of that very valuable resource here in the United States. Dr. Anderson, could we start out, please, by talking a little bit about just how drugs and other substances or chemicals get into the mother's milk? I distinctly remember that years ago, having had the great privilege of working many years with uh, Dr. Ruth Lawrence, she told me, the breast is not a sieve. Just because you put it in the mother doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to come out of the mother's milk. So how does that work? Can you explain that to us a little bit? Well, sure. Uh, of course, most drugs are given orally, and the drug has to be absorbed into the mother's bloodstream first. And then uh, the amount in the bloodstream kind of determines how much is going to get into the breast milk. Now, of course, once the drug is taken, it's diluted throughout the entire body of the mother. Uh, so the concentrations in um, the bloodstream are going to be relatively low. 
in most cases. Um, and then part of that drug can get into the breast milk um, just because the levels in milk are higher, in uh, bloodstream are higher than they are in breast milk. Uh-huh. So they just kind of flow in there passively. Uh, and usually the concentrations are perhaps 100 times less in breast milk than they are in the bloodstream. Wow. Uh, this is distinctly different from uh, during pregnancy where the concentration in the fetus is almost the same as it is in uh, the mother's bloodstream for most drugs. So there's a very large dilutional factor with breastfeeding. Dr. Anderson, I think part of the confusion comes for both the parents and the providers is that we sometimes say that we, we lump drugs in pregnancy and lactation together in one sentence as though those were the same thing. And you're saying they're really not the same thing. The way in which it yeah, works. Exactly. Not, yeah, exactly. I see that problem all the time. It's like pregnancy and lactation is one thing, but it's definitely very different. Yeah. I have heard or and probably read at some point in my life that the amount, and I know I'm asking you to make a big generalization here, but I have heard that the amount that is in the mother's milk is approximately 1% of what she actually took as the dose. Is that anywhere near close to being true? Is it in the ballpark? I'm sure it varies from drug to drug, parent to parent, and so forth, but is that sort of right? Well, there's a big range, but I'd say about half of drugs are less than 1%, actually. And um, there's about 5 or 10% that are over 10% um, of the concentration. But, um, you know, almost 90% of drugs are less than 10% and half are less than 1%. I think that's hugely important because so often... In the lay media, and I'm talking the newspaper, the cable news, the uh, Google, whatever, very often we see that the drug goes through the breast milk. Well, yeah, it does, but (laughs) that doesn't necessarily mean that it is unsafe. Would you agree? That's right. It's the amount that's important, not just that it goes through or doesn't go through, because almost everything goes into breast milk and some amount, but it can be so minuscule that it's not of any consequence. Yeah, I think that's a huge point. And so in one breath, I want to say, Dr. Anderson is absolutely not here, nor am I here to give medical advice. You absolutely need to be working with your physician or whoever is prescribing the medications for you. But in another breath, I want to say, don't be fearful when your doctor says, yes, go ahead and take this. Because although indeed it might go, and it probably does go through the milk, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should stay awake at night worrying about how it's going to affect the baby. That being said, it does sometimes affect the baby, and we'll talk a little bit about adverse reactions. But uh, I am definitely hearing you say that uh, there are some differentiations here that we need to make. All right, so a big one that I have gotten over the years is caffeine. People, mothers will ask me, well, I drink coffee. How much coffee do you drink? And we go through that whole conversation. And they're very concerned about coffee being a big deal, making their baby wakeful. What would you say? 
Well, it's possible, but it depends on the dose that the mother takes or the amount of coffee or caffeine or tea or whatever that the mother takes. So I think most people agree that uh, two or three cups of coffee a day is not a problem. Now, if they're the gigantic size at Starbucks and super <laughs> right. strong, maybe maybe it should be one or two cups, you know. But right. um, that that amounts to about three hundred milligrams of caffeine each. You know, a cup of um, coffee is usually considered to be between a hundred and a hundred and fifty milligrams of caffeine. So, a strong coffee, maybe two cups, and a less strong coffee, three cups. And tea, probably in that same range, even a little bit more because it has less caffeine. Yes, yes. And I would like to remind everyone, uh, Dr. Anderson doesn't make these rules, but I've read many times that a cup of coffee is only six ounces. So that does mean that if you're going to Starbucks and if you're getting a venti, that is 20 ounces. That is not anywhere close to being a cup of coffee. And as he's also saying, it depends on how much coffee you're using when you brew it, uh, all of those sorts of things. But I would also say, don't you think that it also depends on if they're taking in a lot of colas? Well, yes, of course, you have to add everything together, all the different sources of caffeine. So if somebody's drinking two or three cups of coffee in the morning and then has a couple of colas later in the day, uh, that all adds up and then you exceed that 300 milligram, you know, theoretical amount that's not, that's acceptable. Yeah, I just think that it's not as big of a deal, but on the other hand, I have seen some people who consume it nonstop, and that's, uh, there's more to that, certainly. Okay, can we talk a little bit about alcohol? Because as you can imagine, I get this question all the time. So talk to us about what alcohol is like in relation to um, what's in the mother's bloodstream, what is in her milk, what kind of practical advice do we give to mothers who want a little bit of alcohol? Sure. Um, of course, alcohol has a really bad reputation during pregnancy, and that's yes. um, understandable because it's known to cause birth defects. <clears throat> <clears throat> However, um, in uh, breastfeeding, the amount in milk is equal to, very closely equal to the amount in the mother's bloodstream. And so as the mother's uh, blood alcohol level goes up, the milk alcohol level goes up. And as her blood alcohol level goes down, so does the milk alcohol level. It uh, is transported very quickly between the blood and the milk. So uh, what that means is that a mother can have a drink and then wait until the alcohol is gone. It's not going to stay in the breast milk. And once it's gone, then there's no risk to the infant. Now, it's considered that one drink is four to five ounces of wine, one beer, or one mixed drink. That's standard, and yes. it's kind of they all have about the same amount of alcohol. I, I'm it takes about. That is, I'm thinking that that has been the recommendation from the um, the IOM, the Institute of Medicine, since about 1991 or so. Am I correct? 
Meaning, uh, this is not... It, well, it's not I, really a recommendation. I'm not sure. Well, no, it's not really, no. I, I misspoke there, but uh, it is the, the four to five ounces. This is this is nothing new, correct? Oh, no, no, no. That's just the standard, what's considered a standard drink. That's just the definition of a standard drink for purposes of, um, you know, medical purposes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, one standard drink... It takes about two hours to get out of the breast milk. Now, that's a little bit longer than what you think about for, say, driving. But for some reason, nursing mothers metabolize alcohol a little bit slower than uh, non-lactating women. So two hours is uh, the time it takes for one drink to get out of the breast milk. Now, if she has two drinks two of those standard-sized drinks, uh, then it takes four hours. You just multiply by the number of drinks. Because um, nursing mothers in the first month nurse very frequently, some people now are recommending that mothers avoid alcohol in the first month because it's very hard to avoid some alcohol exposure to the infant if she's nursing every couple hours or three hours. So... um, that's not a firm recommendation, but I think the country of Ireland is now recommending that. And uh, it seems reasonable that maybe she should uh, not take alcohol in the first month. But after that, if she wants a drink and she can wait for two to four hours after that, um, it's really not a problem for the infant. Yeah, yeah. And, and I well, it also... I would assume that it would make a difference whether or not she has an empty stomach as opposed to a full stomach, meaning food is in her body already. Yeah, make that, that makes a little bit of difference. It would be faster. Okay. It would okay. get to the milk faster if she has an empty stomach. It also depends on her body size. So the Most. two hours is kind of an average, but right. a, a very large woman, probably an hour and a half, if she's, you know, weighs 70 or 80 kilograms, you know, over, over, um, 160s, 170 pounds. Um, if she's yeah. a very small woman, um, it's two and a half hours. Yes. So yes. you can kind of take that into consideration also. I hope I'm not going off the rails here too much, but a question that I've gotten lately is about kombucha tea. And it is my sort of very flaky understanding here that the kombucha tea because it is fermented, has an alcohol component. Am I right on that? And do we know anything about kombucha tea and breastfeeding? No, I'm sorry. I, I can't really comment. There's nothing, no information on that at all that I know of um, in terms of breastfeeding, and I'm not really quite sure about the alcohol content. It probably is a little bit, but I don't know what the amount is. Okay, well, you certainly have confirmed for me that I'm not missing anything because I have looked and looked and I just can't find any information. And I think that I have enough confidence in you that if there was something out there, you would know about it. So uh, for those of you who are listening, whether you are a parent or a provider, uh, Dr. Anderson is telling us we don't really know about that. So uh, stay tuned. Hey, everybody, I'm Marie Biancuso. I am here today with Dr. Philip Anderson. We will be right back after this short break.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here today with Dr. Philip Anderson, who is the author of LactMed. If you have not discovered LactMed yet, you absolutely should. It is a fabulous resource. I use it all the time. And in the show notes today, I will make sure that I give you uh, some information so that you can... I, I have it on my phone. It's an app. And uh, I use it uh, very frequently. If you haven't already, you should. And oh, by the way, if you aren't aware, I will be offering my comprehensive lactation course live in a couple of different U.S. cities, and I would encourage you to come to my website, check it out, that is breastfeedingoutlook.com. Again, breastfeedingoutlook.com. 
Dr. Anderson, we've talked a little bit about the medications, and I want to talk a little bit more about that maybe later if we get time. But I want to talk about some foods because I frequently get these questions as well. Mothers often feel that foods like, for instance, garlic, onions, those things affect their babies adversely. What would you say? Well, yeah, I agree. That's something that a lot of people um, say or think, but there's surprisingly little scientific information about that. Um, There's nothing to prove or disprove many of these things. But there was uh, an interesting study on garlic, and they gave mothers um, one and a half grams of garlic or a placebo, in other words, a sugar pill, uh, and they didn't know which one they were getting. And they got that for three days, once a day. And then they were asked if their babies had any signs of colic. Yeah. And th- what they called colic was they were more fussy, they cried fussy. more, or had more gas. Yeah. So four of 20 women who took the garlic, who got that in the study, thought... Um, that their infants had symptoms of colic. But of 10 women who received a placebo, four of them also thought that their um, babies had received garlic and had colic symptoms. So, you know, it's very subjective. I can't say whether it does or doesn't, but uh, there's no good evidence that uh, it's a big problem. That said, if a mother continuously sees that her baby is having problems after she eats a certain food, well, she should just stop it. It's not really going to be that big of a deal if she doesn't eat garlic or onion for a period of time. My, my standard answer to that is when mothers say, do you think it bothers the baby? My, my answer is, well, I don't know. Do you think it bothers the baby? And then the ones that really tickle me are the ones who tell me that it bothers them. And I'm thinking, well, if it bothers you, then why are you eating it? (laughs) 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 And similarly, uh, I get the question about cabbage or broccoli, uh, those cruciferous vegetables. As far as I know, there's only one study that has ever been out there. I think it was Lust's study in the 90s. And I have not seen, not that I know of, anything before or since do you have any comments on broccoli or cauliflower, or do you just tell mothers there's, it's no big deal? Yeah, there's really no hard and fast information on that at all. Even that study was not ver- done very well, so yeah, I'm not was. sure that I could um, really make anything out of that study. Right. But uh, they sort of found that you know a lot of things cause problems but as you can see even placebo causes problems with a garlic study so uh, it's hard to say whether it's really a problem but you know if the mother thinks it is and it you know there's no harm in stopping it for a time yeah well, none of us are going to die if we don't eat broccoli uh it's just and then i know of other people who can eat a pound of broccoli and it doesn't bother them at all So I've always kind of been in the situation of saying to mothers, have a self-selected diet, eat what you want. If you think it bothers you, well, don't eat it if it bothers your baby. There's plenty of other things that certainly that are nutritionally sound. There's plenty of things here to eat. Uh, Let's talk a little bit, though, about 
any common foods that really are a problem. The one that jumps to my mind would be fava beans. What can you tell us about fava beans? Yeah, well, for most people, fava beans are not a problem. But there are people that are born uh, with what's called an inborn error of metabolism, or it's just a different genetic variant, and uh, it's called glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, usually called just G6PD deficiency. And it's most common in people with a heritage from the Mediterranean area, North Africa. Um, uh, Many African Americans have this, but this is something that's tested for usually um, at birth. So um, both, you know, there would be family history of having this, and so people might be aware of it, but they might also get a test result back. But uh, there have caused some serious problems when people eat fava beans if they have this uh, G6PD deficiency. It can cause a breakdown of the red blood cells in the baby. And um, that's what it does in adults if they eat too much also. So there have been um, cases reported, usually around the Middle East or Mediterranean. And um, there are... Um, about 14 different varieties of G6PD deficiency, at least. So some are less of a problem, some are more of a problem. But if somebody has this, any of these variants, they should probably avoid fava beans. So, Dr. Anderson, I'm understanding you to say that, yes, this would show up on newborn screening, which I know it does because we screen for, I don't know, some 45 different metabolic uh, uh, issues, but I think I'm hearing you say if the mother has the G6PD, is that correct? Well, it's possible that uh, she is um, recessive. In other words, she doesn't demonstrate it. But if she's married to another person who is recessive, they could have a positive infant. So it's a you know fairly simple genetic thing, even though that neither the father or the mother would have it, the baby could still have it. Usually those mothers who are um, have a mild form of it, and there's probably somebody in their family who has a serious form of it, and um, so there, there would be probably some family history also. But if the, so if the baby has been diagnosed with the G6PD on newborn screening, the mother who is breastfeeding should not be eating the fava beans. Is that, am I getting it right? That's right. She could, okay. she might be able to eat them without a problem, but it could cause a serious problem in uh, the breastfed infant. Okay. okay. I mean, it, even in cases of renal failure and, and a few deaths in breastfed infants, but, you know, this is a very rare situation, particularly because we do screen for it. Yes, yes. Are there any other common foods that you can think of that actually are a problem as opposed to just being a perceived problem? Or does the fava beans pretty much cover it? Well, uh, interestingly, there um, were some cases with mothers who had G6PD deficiency, and they were drinking tonic water, and tonic water has quinine in it. Quinine is one of those drugs that can cause hemolysis in G6PD deficiency. So that's another 
thing that someone might pick up unexpectedly and, and have a problem. Wow. I haven't thought about tonic water in ages, but uh, it certainly does have the quinine, no doubt about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what makes it so bitter. Yes, yes. Uh, yikes. Uh, talk to us a little bit about allergies, because there's two things from where I sit. Number one is when the mother says to me, my baby is allergic to my milk, and I try to set her straight with, it's not that the baby is allergic to your milk. It is that the baby might possibly be allergic to something, some substance in your milk. Uh, But talk to us about what sorts of uh, allergies that baby might experience. Yeah, well, I've looked into it a little bit with medications. Uh, We've tried to find every reported case of any kind of side effect in in babies when mothers were taking medications. And we only came up with, well, fewer than 200 cases in the entire literature. So it's not a commonly reported thing. But when I looked carefully at the symptoms in each of these uh, cases, it looked to me like about 20 or 25% of them were allergic reactions and not because the mother was taking too much of the drug or that the baby was getting too much, but it was an allergic reaction. So it certainly can happen, um, but not commonly. Um, you know, then, then you can also get into some very um, deep into some confusing areas such as um, allergy to cow's milk. So oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if mothers are, are drink milk, uh, some of the protein from the cow's milk can get into the breast milk, and allergies don't take a large amount. They just take a little bit to trigger the immune system. So huh. just minute amounts of some things can cause allergic reactions. Yes, and I know that there has also been discussion about whether it is a true allergic reaction or if it's a hypersensitivity, and I'm sure that we could debate that all week long, uh, so there's no real, no real answer to that. But, but clearly the baby has some sort of a reaction. In a, in a sense, it probably doesn't matter what you label it, but if you're seeing that the baby has a reaction, it could be food, it could be uh a medication. What about vaccinations? In uh, can, I, I just wrote a post a while ago that said you should always check, but pretty much if you want a flu shot and you're breastfeeding, it's okay. Any other comments on uh, vaccinations? Yeah, I did write a column about that recently, and basically all of the routine vaccinations are fine. There's no reason not to get routine vaccinations during breastfeeding. In fact, in many cases, it actually helps the baby, um, gives them immunity to the disease also. The the flu vaccine is a good example of that. So I would recommend that people get all the vaccines, uh, and there's no uh, known time when it's a problem. In fact, even um, during pregnancy, it's recommended that the flu vaccine be given because that will transmit antibodies to the baby across the placenta, as well as in the breast milk. And they've shown that babies have um, fewer respiratory infections if the mother got the flu shot during pregnancy. So there are a couple of vaccines that should not be given to pregnant women uh, and breastfeeding women. And one is 
the yellow fever vaccine. Now, that's oh, just uh-huh. a, it's a travel vaccine that very few people get. So it's not you know like a big public health crisis that they can't get that. But um, they shouldn't get it during um, breastfeeding and until the baby is about nine months of age, I believe. And then the baby can get it themselves. So, um, you know, if they're traveling to an area where yellow fever exists, uh, there could be a problem in um, deciding whether or not she should get the vaccine. And the other is um, a smallpox vaccine. Now, we don't give that routinely anymore, but uh, there have been some cases of that um, being transmitted. And I do believe that uh, smallpox, I'm not military, but I do believe that military families do get the smallpox vaccine. Yes, some do. I'm not sure that all do, but um, some do. And that was the the case that was reported that a baby ended up with, um, well, it's called vaccinia, which is the name of the the vaccine, that uh, there was a vaccinia infection all over the baby's face, and she was breastfeeding. But it's not the father was the one who got the shot, and it's not really quite clear how that was transmitted, whether it was through the milk or just direct contact and so forth. But it's you know not you have to take a lot of precautions at, with a smallpox vaccination. Yes, yes, uh, Doctor Anderson, I am scrambling. I know I had your article up before we went on the air today. Uh, about the vaccinations, but I don't have it under my fingers at the moment. Could you just specify when you said the routine vaccinations are okay? Can you give us some examples there? Well, uh, the MMR vaccine, um, the flu shots, um, polio vaccinations, not a problem. Right. Okay. And okay. Of course, in the MMR, there's three different vaccines, so all of, all three of those are considered to be okay. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Okay, uh, really interesting. And is is this a true statement? If the uh, if it is a killed organism, would you say that in most cases it would be safe for the breastfeeding mother? Well, I'd say in all cases, if it's a killed organism, the the only concern is a few of the live vaccines, and that's what the um, yellow fever yeah. and the smallpox are smallpox. both live vaccines. Yeah. Okay. Um, the only live vaccine, routine live vaccine that's ever been found in breast milk is rubella, um, Ooh, but it doesn't okay. cause any problems in the, the breastfed infant. So it is present, but not problematic. Yeah, and that's the only one that's ever been detected. Okay, interesting. Hey, everybody, don't go away. I'm here today with Dr. Philip Anderson. I'm Marie Biancuso. We will be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk 
with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I am here today with Dr. Philip Anderson, and we are talking about potentially sub, sub, potentially toxic substances and those that have maybe been uh, either perceived to be toxic but aren't and those that are, in fact, toxic in human milk. I would invite all of you, please, to go to mariebiancuso.com. I will have information for you as a follow-up to this show that's M A R I E B I A N C U Z Z O dot com. All right, so back to Dr. Anderson. Um, Dr. Anderson, what can you tell us about spoiled foods? I'm concerned about food poisoning, botulism, marine toxins, any of those sorts of things. Help us. 
Yeah, sure. There, there is some information about uh, a few things that have caused problems. Usually it's the unusual problems that get published in the literature, so um, that's why there's a few things out there. Probably the most common thing might be botulism. And unfortunately, there's very little information about that during breastfeeding. And um, there's one case of a mother who got botulism from spoiled eggs, and they actually tried to detect the toxin in breast milk and the baby's blood, and they couldn't find any. So, I mean, that's a little bit reassuring, but, you know, one case is not the the final answer. So, you know, if somebody is poisoned by food, they probably shouldn't breastfeed for a little while until they recuperate. Um, You know, another common thing that you hear about every once in a while, maybe because I work with the poison center sometimes, that um, uh, people who uh, gather mushrooms and get one of the toxic mushrooms. Oh, right. And the most most, um, serious toxins are from the uh, amanita-type mushrooms. And um, they can be, you know, deadly in a day or two So because they just kind of destroy the kidney and the liver. Well, most places say if you um, are poisoned by these and you're breastfeeding, you should stop breastfeeding. And that's probably good advice. But the only information that I've been able to find is a mother who did eat a bunch of uh, foraged mushrooms and developed symptoms um, and she had breastfed her four-month-old about four hours after she took the mushrooms in, and the infant did fine, no problem. But, huh. um, you know, again, one case is not definitive, so I would say, you know, if you are poisoned by food, you probably should not um, breastfeed for a, a time until you recuperate. So, just to be clear, you're not talking about mushrooms that I would buy in my local grocery store, correct? Correct. You should. Right. These are usually people who go out in the forest and uh, pick mushrooms. And uh, interestingly, we've had some cases where um, people from, they're immigrants who are used to doing this in their home country. They come here and the mushrooms kind of look the same, but they're very oh, toxic. Okay. Uh, we had two or three deaths here in San Diego uh, area a few years ago because of that. So uh, they say there's um, um, old mushroom foragers, bold mushroom foragers, but there are no old, bold mushroom foragers. <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So then, might it be, I'm not usually one to tell mothers that they can't eat or do something, but in this case, it seems like the best advice, since we don't have much to go on, would be, if you are breastfeeding, don't uh, don't eat the wild mushrooms. Would that be reasonable advice? Yeah, I think I, I'd be suspicious of eating wild mushrooms, even if I weren't breastfeeding. But Yeah, that too, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I was uh, intrigued with what you wrote, and I'm looking in this 2018 article, and uh, this was news to me. 
but uh, certainly it had not occurred to me that that was part of a cultural thing. But speaking of culture, uh, talk to us about other things that uh, maybe cultures would use or ingest that maybe have some questions about their safety during breastfeeding. Yeah, when I was researching this, I found some interesting uh, papers about cultures that eat sea turtle meat. And this seems to be um, sort of susceptible to developing toxins. They think that they accumulate from what the sea turtles eat uh, in the environment. And um, there's actually several deaths that have been reported in uh, people who have eaten these. There was, um, in Madagascar, there were 76 victims in one case report of uh, mothers who, or of people who became very toxic. Many of them died. And some of the mothers were breastfeeding, uh, seven of them, in fact. And um, their seven infants were all poisoned. But um, none of the mothers died. They were very sick, but four of the infants died. And um, now some of them, the mothers had given a little bit of the the meat to the babies, but one of them was exclusively breastfeeding and not given any, and that baby died also. So um, five of the mothers stopped breastfeeding because they started having symptoms, but I guess it was too late because two of their infants died even though they had stopped breastfeeding. So this is something that's extremely toxic but not something that's normally done in the United States. Um, Nonetheless, we know that we have people who come from other countries and we don't know what they had yesterday or what they're going to find tomorrow. And as I'm hearing you talk, it seems to me that you're saying that the turtle meat was toxic for the mother, whether or not she was breastfeeding, but it was also toxic to her breastfed baby. Is that correct? Yes. It appears that's the okay. case. Okay. So maybe the take-home message is here. Uh, what would be some of – do you know or do you remember, did it say what were some of the symptoms? I wouldn't even know what to look for. <clears throat> of the the toxicity of turtle meat. Yeah, well, initially it was uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, I guess, vomiting and diarrhea, but then uh, some neurologic nerve-type problems, and then the liver and the kidney were uh, affected, and that's probably what caused the death is the kidney failure and renal failure and uh, yeah. hepatic failure. So going back to things that are a little bit more common, I'm thinking, for instance, uh, (laughs) my biggest experience with food poisoning was actually after I had given a lactation lecture, and uh, they they offered me lunch, and I ate the chicken, and you know what I'm going to say. I had the chicken, yeah. Uh, So I was not lactating at the time, but... I can't believe that I'm the only one that's ever had food poisoning from chicken. If I were in that situation and breastfeeding, then how long should I stop breastfeeding for? Do we have any information to make a recommendation there? Well, I think the more common types of food poisoning that, like from chicken or um, 
other things. There's not really much information on it. Uh, it's generally just an affects the person's gastrointestinal tract uh, that eats that. Um, so it's because it's um, an actual organism, and those don't really get into breast milk. So it may not be a problem, but you may not feel like breastfeeding. Yeah, I was just going to say. So, um, um, I you know, it wouldn't hurt to just stop until you feel better, I suppose. Oh, my word, I was so bad that they had to take me to the emergency room. I was just absolutely a mess. I'd never been that sick in my life. And uh, I guess nobody else got it, but, boy, I sure did. So tell us, I know that, uh, to me, LactMed is a fabulous research uh, 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 resource, and you'll be very interested to know that not very long ago, I gave my comprehensive lactation course in Florida, and I had a neonatologist come from uh, Colombia. And to my utter astonishment, she said, oh, yes, yes, we use LactMed in Colombia. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, so this is not just something that Americans use. Uh, How can we get more information and tell us a little bit, how did you get involved in LactMed? I found that very interesting. Well, I, I've been interested in the area of drugs and breastfeeding for quite a long time and, and written about it. Um, and I, that's probably since the 1980s. Um, and I opened a service uh, and I took calls from the public about it. So, and I got a lot of exposure to what mothers were taking and the types of questions that they had. And one time I had the opportunity to talk to uh, one of the supervisors at the National Library of Medicine, and I said, well, if you ever want a database on drugs and breastfeeding, you know, let me know because I'd be happy to do it for you. And it turns out that they did want one, and so we started it and have just continued to build it. Wow, what a what a wonderful opportunity, and it kind of sounds as though you didn't really expect them to take you up on the offer, but in fact, look at where we are now. I have read that the FDA is going to be assigning some sort of, um, I don't know, category or number or taxonomy of some kind to different drugs in breastfeeding the way that they do in pregnancy. Is there any truth to that? No, in fact, they're going in the opposite direction. Really? Uh, okay. They are getting they're getting away from categories, and they have uh, are eliminating the pregnancy categories altogether. Oh, whoa! So okay. um, I can't see that happening at all. Okay, uh, this is a one- It's just finishing up a five year process of changing all of the labeling of drugs on the market. Um, to a new system where they actually explain things better and don't just have categories. Because okay. um, as you and I were mentioning earlier, that every baby is different, mm-hmm. and um, particularly things like the age of the infant is crucially important as to whether something is going to be safe or not. So newborns are much more susceptible, and preterm infants are even more susceptible than that. But a one-year-old, there's almost nothing that the mother can take that's going to be a problem for a one-year-old that's breastfeeding part-time. So uh, you can't just give a category to something like that. It doesn't make sense. 
Well, I'm very relieved to hear you say that because uh, so often I do get that from professionals who think that they they want what I call a cookie cutter answer, and there's it's just not that simple. You also have kids who uh, do have some sort of pathology going on. You can't just give a one-size-fits-all, at least not in my small, humble opinion. And I often say, although I do have an advanced degree in certification, I do not want uh, prescriptive privileges. I don't want that responsibility. It's really a lot of uh, risk-benefit. So I guess maybe that would bring me to my final question for today, which is, would you agree that a lot of this really does come down to risk-benefit? And if so, can you address that? Yeah, that is absolutely true. And what we're talking about is the benefits of breastfeeding, which are substantial. Yeah. And so it's not uh, – you can't just say that, well, there might be a problem with this drug, so the risks are too great, because the risks of stopping breastfeeding are very great also. And I'd say in 95% of the cases, the benefits of breastfeeding outweigh the risks of of a medication or or any kind of food or something like that. So um, in almost all cases, it's not a reason to stop breastfeeding. But there are those cases like preterm infants who might be very susceptible to things in the breast milk where you there is some concern. Yes, yes. Uh, to me, that whole idea of risk-benefit is individualized. It should be well thought out. And uh, there are very, very few things in healthcare for which there is a one-size-fits-all. So this has been an enormously enlightening time. Uh, for those of you who are listening I have been with Dr. Philip Anderson. Dr. Anderson is the Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Pharmacy at the Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in, at San Diego. He is also the author of the National Library of Medicine's LACMED database, and he has a regular column in breastfeeding. Uh, excuse me, in uh, breastfeeding medicine. Uh, for those of us who have a subscription. We can look forward to that. And in the meanwhile, I would just say uh, we've had a really good time talking today with Dr. Philip Anderson. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. And for those of you who are listening, remember, I will be back next week. And in the meanwhile, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.